Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. You know that feeling when you're scrolling through Instagram and then you see a painting that makes you want to both laugh and cry. Laugh because you can't help it. It's just so beautiful. It just evokes something in you and then cry because you didn't create it. And you wonder if you'll ever be able to feel that way about your own work. This is how I first found today's guest, Bernard Delario. I saw one of his paintings on Instagram, investigated and saw that he was also a teacher. So I knew I needed to at least ask if he'd be a guest on the show. And the funny thing is, this keeps happening. Just yesterday, I was on Instagram again, and I saw a painting, and I thought, oh my gosh, I so want to interview the brain behind this work. And then I clicked on it and realized, oh, I have. It's today's show. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where you'll find the tools and techniques, concepts, and mindsets you need to design your own unique artistic path. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. And today, I'm talking with Bernard Delario. In the conversation, you'll learn how he prioritized his time when he was working full-time, why it's worth trying that value study with your paints, and how simplification isn't always so simple. Plus, want the extended cut? It's available right now over on Patreon. We really shift the conversation into color and edges. You'll learn a new approach to the limited palette, how to keep shapes interesting, and how to make that transition from your three-value sketch to a more complex painting. You can find all of that at patreon.com slash learntopaintpodcast. For show notes, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 54. And as always, I start the interview with asking Delario how he got started in art. I could recall very early in my youth, always being interested in art. And it's funny because no one in my family had any inclination to do that. But for some reason, I was just always drawn to the creating the three-dimensional world in a two-dimensional way. And I have real early recollections of sitting in front of our bathroom, drawing the tiled pattern of storks in our bathroom. So yeah, I just, I, it goes way back. <laughs> Then how did you pursue art from that interest as a, a young kid sort of into your professional career? Early on, my mom was really nurturing in, in that regard. And she actually signed me up for local classes at the, I think it was like an amusement park or something is, is what I recall, but they had classes. And I was one of the younger students in the class, but I used to love going to, to that class. It was quite a ways away. She would drive me there. So she actually sort of saw that I was very interested in it and, and always allowed me to pursue that. They would always buy me paint by number things when I was a, a kid. I have one here hanging in my studio that I kept. So yeah, they brought me to all those things when and if they could. So it wasn't always easy to do where I grew up, but they were diligent in, about getting me in front of those teachers. Did you go to art school or are you primarily self-taught? Primarily self-taught, you know, I had an interest in art, did it in high school. When I went to college for finance, I sort of put all that stuff on the back burner. I realized, you know, I wasn't going to make a lot of money in that field. And I, like any young person growing up, I wanted things and I wanted to get ahead. So I went to school for finance and I'm very happy that I did. That career has been very good to me. 
So I sort of put my art inclinations on hold during that period while I was starting up my career. When I got out of college and was established in my first job, I was very lucky to be in the Washington, D.C. area, and the Art League in Old Town, Alexandria, was readily available to me, and they had some really wonderful instructors. So my art instincts awakened once I was settled, and I took some classes, and from there it was, you couldn't stop me. I just, every semester I was signing up for something, and I was really lucky to have that facility available to me because I think that was instrumental in me learning some really good foundations in art. Do you think there was a benefit for you not having it be the thing that you were using to earn money? Did that give you a freedom to really explore and learn without sort of an urgency of this has to pay the bills? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. And I often think about that because I don't know how art would have played out for me if it had been a financial thing. It never was about finances. It was always about me doing it because I loved to do it. It never had to be about money. And I wonder as an artist having to do that for financial reasons, and I get it, it's got to be very difficult. I wonder if that would have put me into different avenues. You know, I had to do things because it made money. Whereas now it's like I did things because I wanted to do them. I pursued subject matter because it was fun for me. I knew it wasn't going to sell. Or I just do exercises or studies because I want to get better. So yeah, I think it probably would have played out differently. I don't know, maybe it could have been successful, but I'm not looking back and have any regrets. I think being financially stable in my career has allowed me to just have two sides of my life, you know, the business side and the art side. It's difficult to play both. That That is true. But I think that allowed me the freedom to explore myself as an artist better. If you have a full-time job, there's less time for painting. So how did you prioritize sort of the rest of your life for painting? Or did you? Or was that an unconscious thing or a conscious thing? How did that play out, the time management and prioritization side? Really good question. I had little time for anything else, frankly, because I did want to explore all the things related to art. Because when I started, you know, that art instinct was awoken in me. I was voracious. I studied as much as I could with as many people as I could. Of course, practicing on your own and doing things on your own is a big part of it. But I'd work you know, all week like everybody else. And my weekends were dedicated to art. I would go to classes in the evening. That's when I would do my study. So I recall vividly, it was like Wednesday nights and Thursday nights was when I would do my classes. But then on the weekends, I would do art a lot. And uh, thank goodness for my partner. He was very understanding. But that's, you know, most of my free time was dedicated to the act of painting and learning. So it sounds like you were pretty conscious about that, that you sort of made a decision this is what I'm doing with my time. Yes. Obviously, the my work life had to come first. That's where I earned my money. But then my free time was earmarked for, uh, you know, I'm painting on Saturday. I, I said, okay, I've got eight hours to do my work. And that's what I did. You know, it was like another job, really, but a job that I loved a little bit more, maybe. <laughs> but I dedicated time. I allocated time. And of course, I allocated some other time, of course, for things you need to do. But there was a schedule and I, I kept to it. And I really believe that was how I kept both things alive and renewed, just keeping yourself on a dedicated schedule. And, you know, creating art is not always what you want to do. So I would find myself when I did have that block of time, it was like, I just didn't feel like doing it. So of course, in those times, you sort of had to recalibrate and move things around. And sometimes you just didn't do it. But mostly, you know, I spent a lot of my life, a lot of my free time during my work career creating art. It also sounds like that evolved, like you had to figure out how to do that. You didn't just magically find a system that worked for you to have a full-time job and then 
a second job of art. Like you had to calibrate that to your life. Yeah, absolutely. You had to uh, figure out, you know, what comes first and what comes second. And it was then my work life and then, then my art life. And, you know, you plug in the holes and, and you figure out what could work. And as ambitious as it might have been when I set out my schedule, it often didn't work. But you do it when you can. So you, and it's flexible. Even to this day, you know, now I'm doing a lot of teaching. Uh, so that takes a, up a lot of my time, which I, I really enjoy doing that. But now it's, I'm still under the, the guise of allocating time to creating art and then telling others about art. So it's it's still a process of I don't have all the time in the world now that I'm retired because I'm actually busier now than I was before. But I'm doing all the stuff that I love. So that's that's the difference. We're going to jump into materials. So you paint in both oil and gouache. And we haven't talked about gouache much on the show. So what is gouache? For someone who doesn't know anything about gouache, what is gouache? Gouache is a water-based medium. It is not like watercolor in the fact that you could use it as a... Think about putting a light over a dark, which for me is primarily an oil painter is a very satisfying thing to do. And you could use a lot of heavy body paint. I suppose you could use that in watercolor as well, but it's just a water-based medium that is you could paint as thickly as you can with oil and... It's a great crossover medium for the oil painter who wants to try a water-based medium. So with watercolor, people work in glazes or, you know, generally thin. But with gouache, you can, like, you can put a light on a dark and it holds. Yeah. So with watercolor, you know, and I really appreciate a good watercolorist, but I can't think that way where you have to preserve and think in advance about what you're doing so much. I'm more of a correcting things as I go type of painter, and I really enjoy that process. And gouache is perfect for that because you could put that light in at the very end, whereas you don't have to think about preserving it as you do with watercolor. So it's very tactile and satisfying. It's like that medium in the middle. The watercolors understand it because it's water-based and oil painters could understand it because it's opaque based. That's how I think about it. How do you use it as an oil painter? Do you use it for studies? Do you now use it for complete paintings? How does gouache sort of fit into your artistic process, but also the paintings you create? So I'm going to give you a little backstory on gouache. When I was coming up as an oil painter, I had a very, very inspiring teacher that was my oil painting teacher back at the Art League in Old Town, uh, Diane Tesler. And she used a process where she would do gouache studies for these really beautiful big oil paintings that she did. I studied with her for, for a number of years, and I was just enamored with that process. And it was just a really utilitarian medium for her to figure out her bigger paintings. But I just love them. They're just, they were just gorgeous. And um, I really asked her to show me how to use it. And she, she did a special class for the group and she sort of uh, introduced us to it. I knew nothing about it. And I, I was just hooked from then on. Now I was hooked. That's one thing. But then I was also abominable at using it <laughs> because it wasn't a real, you know, I was an oil painter and I knew glazes and I knew the nuances of oil paint. But when you get into gouache, it's, I think the tendency is to use it as a watercolor medium. And you don't initially know how to use it as an opaque medium. So I, I did it as she used it. I used it primarily to just fiddle around with, to figure out if I wanted to do a bigger painting. So I'd study a subject and sort of do a sketch in color. Think about a drawing with a color notation aspect to it to figure out if you wanted to do a bigger composition. And I used it for that way for a number of years, and I began to like it more and more. And then I got into plein air painting. Um, at that time, when I was learning it, it was more a studio painting. But then when I got into plein air painting and, you know, taking your supplies outside and just always whittling those down into a very manageable set of things you have to carry around, 
Gouache is the perfect medium for doing that because it's so light. It dries quickly. You just need to take water with you. It's very easy to use. Then I started using it in a different way. I started using it in a more painterly way, like as if I were painting in oils. And I hadn't done that to that point. So I became very expressive with it. And at that point, they became paintings in and of themselves. They didn't just become tools to do bigger paintings. So I use it both ways. I still use it as a way to explore an idea. And I just use it to make paintings from just for themselves. So it's it's a great medium. I don't use one more than the other. I, you know, in the summer, I probably use more gouache because I'm outdoors painting more. But yeah, it's it's a great medium for both of those aspects. You paint also in oil. So do you paint a la prima? Yeah, I, I do uh, a la prima painting. I, I really love that probably most. I'm very intuitive quick painter, but I do do paintings that have more of a sustained feel to them. Like I'm about to embark on a 36 by 48, two of them, two canvases for a show coming up. Those obviously will be longer paintings, but I still start all of my paintings as if they're all a prima. So my goal is to get the white covered. If I'm painting on a white surface, and I usually do, the goal is to just go as quick as you can to make quick decisions about big shapes and values and colors and get a block in, at least in the first session, have some feeling and movement to it. Even if it's a sustained painting over a number of days or weeks, I won't go slower because of that. I'll still go with the sense of urgency in the beginning. So yeah, I paint a la prima mostly, but not only. Then for you, what are the benefits of working a la prima? What does that give you as an artist and what does that give your work? I think it gives it gives two things. I think a la prima painting, this is just my personal spin on it. I think going quicker as a painting, you know, your first instincts are often the best. I think that's really true. I've worked with so many students that they show me steps along the way in a painting and usually their starts are better, they're fresher. So I think doing a, a painting in an a la prima method where you're going a little faster than you might otherwise go. Your starts are better, your intuitions are better, and uh, it just seems fresher. So it has a looser, more expressive feel. And I think it probably has a more honest feel for me. And I tend to like those paintings a little more than those that are more, maybe more tightly rendered. That's just a personal aesthetic. So does that mean that you generally will finish a painting in a session or will it go over a couple of sessions? Yeah, all a prima for me means all at once. So it doesn't need to be a timed thing, but it should be something that you start and finish probably the same day while the painting's still wet. Let's let's say those are the parameters. And that could go over a number of days. But usually for me, it's when I'm setting up to do an all a prima still life, for example, I just wrapped up a class on that, set up a still life, usually with what's ever in front of me, my garden or whatever I bought at the store. And I commence to do a painting and it usually takes... If it's a smaller, you know, 10 by 10 or 12 by 12 painting, it'll probably take an hour for me to, to finish. So that's the parameter for me anyway. Could you walk us through your process? Sure. Uh, well, it depends on what I'm painting, really. So if I'm painting, let's start with painting a still life. So I get stuff that's in front of me and I like to paint from life mostly when I can. And a still life is a great example for exercising those skills, painting from life, because, you know, you don't have to paint and it's not going to move. So there's nothing better than setting those up in your studio and, and commencing to paint it. So pick a subject. I don't think too much about it. It's more about not the thing, but it's about what pattern of lights and darks for me, the values that they create in, a, in an interesting way on a surface. So that's what I'm looking to. So it's not whether I'm painting a bouquet of flowers or a pile of bricks or a pile of laundry. It doesn't really matter. It's like, what is the light doing? What are the colors doing? Is it doesn't make an interesting grayscale value study for me. 
then I just dive in. Sometimes I'll do a value study of it. And sometimes, oftentimes I'll just dive in and do a color study or just go right into the painting with big blocks of color and shape and that sort of thing. Do you generally work dark to light then? Yes, I definitely do a dark to light scenario. I know a lot of painter friends who go the opposite direction, but I'm very in that mode. I, I just think of all the darks in my subject and even in the dark local color of whatever it is, and then go up the value chain and then save my lights for the end. Then, yeah, do you build up the whole painting at once or do you finish off individual areas at a time? I've been doing a lot of demos of me painting for my classes. And I've noticed that interestingly lately, that I'm very sort of all over the place when I paint. I guess I sort of knew it, but I watch myself when I'm looking at my final videos and I'm like, wow, I'm just, I'm bopping all over that canvas. I'll do the something in the upper right and I go to the lower left and I go to the middle. And I think that's because I really gotten to a point where bringing up the whole painting at once is crucial for me because whatever you do somewhere else is going to tell you something different about something you may have already done. So I think it's really crucial to, to bring it up all together. You know, finishing one part and getting it absolutely right and then going on to the next may work for some people, but I think seeing the whole thing sort of emerge is probably a better and truer example of trying to get it right. So that works for me. The building it all up together, does that help you keep looser? I think so, because I think if you get into the into the trap, let's call it, of trying to figure out that one area that's really beguiling to you, it's like you just can't get it. You just lose your momentum and your intuition and your flow. And I also think about it about sneaking up on something where you're not quite sure how you're going to do it. It's like you do a little bit and then you go on to something else and you come back and look at it again and you might think differently about it. Uh, you do a little bit more and then you go somewhere else. I know that might not work for some people, but give it a try if you're not used to doing that, because I think that really sort of gets your head out of thinking about something too much. And if you just worry about it and think about getting it right too much, you just get exhausted. And I think that's a way to keep fresh throughout the painting is to just just keep moving around the whole surface and building it up together. That really works for me. I'm really struck by when you put a mark down, you may not know if you like it yet. Like you may need time to decide if that was the right thing to do, as opposed to just knowing immediately every time. I absolutely never know what it's going to look like. I try things. You you try to get it right. You try to match the color. You try to match the value as close as you can. I tell myself and my students all the time, get it close. Because again, whatever you do now is going to change when you do something next to it. So you can't really chase that down that rabbit hole too much. So yeah, if you think you got it right, you hope you got it right. But oftentimes you don't. And painting is just a series of corrections. So you just have to get into that mode and you have to be in love with mixing color. You have to really be in love with what's going on in your palette, understanding how the color works and getting that to work. Because whatever you do on your canvas is really dictated by what's going on on your palette. So you got to get that right. Walking into a painting, what do you need to have figured out either mentally or through thumbnails before you pull out your paints? Yeah, I think the only critical thing that that needs to work for me is there needs to be an interesting subject that you know, either through study or drawing or something that you've done in advance, that it makes a good two-dimensional image in color or value or some other interest. You really should know that first before you dive into a painting. And I think having done so many paintings over over the the years that I'm pretty good at figuring out something's going to work doesn't always work out quite well, but usually usually comes out pretty good. So I'm pretty good at 
realizing oh, that that that'll work. I'll do that. So I've gotten to the point where I don't have to do a lot of preliminary work or study unless it's a bigger piece. And of course, I'll do color studies and value studies and drawings. Yeah. But if it's an a la prima piece, I could just jump right in. But in the beginning, you should have a good composition and good values. Those are the two things. So if someone is starting out and they don't sort of have that that built up skill yet and confidence, how would you suggest they do that planning? You mentioned value studies and color studies. How would you suggest they approach a value study or a color study? Absolutely. The the most critical thing that they could do if they're unsure is just to do a value study in an abstract way. It's not to do a value study in a very detailed way of the subject. Think about getting your mind out of whatever it is you're painting, pick three values, and commence to doing an abstraction on that subject. So the notan, think of notans, which are the, you know, the, the black and white it's that type of thing. Because if you don't have an interesting interpretation of that subject in values, just three values, for instance, in an abstract way, if it doesn't elicit some sort of response, I mean, don't bother. I mean, you got to have something in interest that way to get an interesting painting, I think. So mix three values, paint your subject, connecting things so that they're not, you know, you're not painting one thing versus the other. You're connecting the bigger idea of the thing and the shadow it may create and how it connects to other shadows or other things and finding those rhythms and patterns. And when those collections of three values make an interesting design to you, doesn't matter what it is. It's just like, is there a balance of light, medium, dark on there? Then that's a, probably a good idea that that'll work. Then do you suggest that people do those value studies in paint? Yeah, because uh, you could do it in other mediums, but do it in paint. I think that just hones your skills more on how to use paint, which is a whole whole other thing. You know, using enough paint, how to manipulate the paint with your brush. Those are all valuable skills to always be practicing. But yeah, you could do them with value markers or just pencils and different pressures or even even collages. Collage is a great way to figure out an abstraction of a piece. You know, you're breaking down all the, the things that you use to get details and just getting big shapes and forms. So yeah, markers, gouache is a great one to use. Yeah. Well, then when you're setting up your still lifes, are you doing compositional thinking in that setup or does that compositional thinking really begin after you've stepped back from it? I start by deciding what it is that, that might be in the vignette and then I start arranging things and see how, seeing how they look. It's a little bit more difficult with still life because, you know, the slightest shift to one angle gives you a whole different view and it could be better, it could be worse. But that's a you know a blessing and a curse because you could never get anything done because you're just, oh, the next thing I'm doing is going to be even better. So I would suggest trying something, getting a decent composition and just commencing because you could really spend a lot of time setting those things up, which is another good reason to do a lot of them quickly because you could explore so many other ideas by just moving some things around. But I'm, I'm always thinking about the composition as I'm building it with the thought that the slightest movement in something could totally change something or adding something could either make or break it. So you just never know. You've said this a couple of times that don't overthink it, just just do it. Clearly planning is important, but do you think that people get stuck in those places of thinking like, well, if I spend 10 more minutes, if I move it just a little bit, when really the amount they'll learn really is in the painting? Yeah, I, I think we spend too much time thinking and, and planning which are good, especially if you're doing a bigger piece. You definitely have to do that. And when you're learning how to paint, you learn how to paint by painting, right? By the actual act of painting. And that's why I think it's critical to get in the mode of 
not thinking about your paintings as being the end result so much rather than the process in making it is the value, especially in the beginning. I think about my art that way now. It's more about the value of me doing the act of painting than what I get in the end, because I'm learning something that's going to make me better tomorrow. I absolutely am. You may not see it, but but you are. So I think don't think too much about just get to, get to painting. And that Alaprima aspect, setting time limits, maybe an hour, you could do another one in a different uh, a different idea. So rather than spend a day getting the perfect subject and then spending a week doing a painting, do three or four versions of some ideas and do three paintings. That's going to get you much further down the road than trying to get it right and pulling out a linen canvas and doing a beautiful painting that's going to be framed. Paint on gessoed paper and do, do 10 of them. I think that's better than doing one. That's going to set you up for when you need to pull out the linen canvas. <laughs> when you do plain air... How do you choose a good scene? And and what does a good scene in plain air need? This sort of goes back to the previous question, how you could spend too much time. Because when I started painting plein air and I had my posse of friends that we'd get together, we're going to go out and paint plein air now. And we knew that we weren't that good painting plein air. We, we were good studio painters. We were just trying to get good at painting plein air. This was you know, 15, 20 years ago. We would spend the whole day driving around looking for the the beautiful scene that, you know, that's, and of course the sun's moving and everything's changing as you're driving around and we'd end up going to lunch. You know, we wouldn't paint because we couldn't find something to paint. Now it's like, I tell my friend, the same friend that we used to procrastinate, uh, meet me here. So I'm going to be painting here today, join me. And I sit down and whatever the lighting conditions are, gray, sunny, hopefully not raining. I don't paint in the rain or cold. You sit down and you, you paint something. And because I've gotten better at doing a lot of them in gouache, for instance, I could do three or four paintings in a, in a two hour session. It doesn't matter. You do a scene, you look another way, you do another scene and you look another way and you do another. Hopefully you're going to get something that's really great. But oftentimes, again, it's about the practice of painting. And if I do something that's maybe a kernel of an idea to make a better painting of, I could do two things. I could go back with a more intentional thought process, or I could save that color study for a uh, another day and do do a studio piece from it, which I do often. So it's like, don't waste your time looking. The perfect subject doesn't exist. Your job as an artist is to make something look beautiful from the most mundane subject. So just pick something and make something interesting out of it. It really sounds like you like the challenge of saying like, what is in front of me and what can I do with it? Which also, I assume, I'm making assumptions here, that means you don't feel like you owe that subject a accurate rendering. That's correct. Now, in fact, I, I used to think that way. I used to think making art was just a, a rendering what was in front of me. But I quickly realized that as an artist, you need to respond to something. And then on your painting surface, that reigns supreme. That dictates where you should go. So I, I do need to look at something and respond to it when I'm painting, but then the painting takes over. And then if I need to adjust colors, if I need to move some things around, you do whatever you need to do to make that painting work. So yeah, I need to have a visual response, but then I make the painting take over. So we're going to move into value a little bit here. Many of us have heard of value, but what is a value pattern? A value pattern, going back to the Notan idea and getting that base abstract interest. You know, when you go into a gallery or museum and you see a painting from across the room, think about a John Singer Sargent or a Caravaggio, they grab you, right? You could be as far away, but it's like, wow. 
and because it has a strong value pattern. There's strong lights and darks, and every painting isn't that way. You know, think of a impressionist painting. Those are beautiful, but those are more enjoyed closely viewed. Those ones that give you that impact from further back have a good value pattern. And that is they have the right balance of light versus dark, light, middle, and dark, I would argue. And they create some sort of abstract pattern that's interesting over and above what the subject is. So yeah, if you could create something that has that underlying thread in an interesting way, that I think is the basis for a good painting. If someone, a newer painter, let's say, is looking at a scene and there are the lights and darks they see in front of them, but how do they turn that into something that is a strong value pattern? Like, how do you know when you have a strong value pattern if what you're looking at has a value pattern sort of innately? How does that back and forth sort of translation happen? And then how do you know when you have a strong value pattern? So you look at something and then you you sort of have to, you don't want to see every iteration on the value scale. You want to sort of compartmentalize ones that might be closer into bigger buckets. So they make a bigger idea. So you have to, as an artist, you, you do have to arrange things. So that's why it's really useful when I do it or when I have my students do these, just pick three values and you have to pick and choose what's going to go in each value. And, and my interpretation may be different than theirs because you pick one of three buckets and they make those gray areas. Some might put in the light category or the middle category, or those that are on the darker side might go in the middle or dark. So you pick and choose, but that makes a different image when you choose to put them in different ways. So that's where you sort of have like, think about yourself as an artist, like uh, moving things around to nudge things into a darker value pattern that might create more interest or a lighter value pattern that might create more interest. You know, it's never a good idea to have like a 50-50 light versus dark. So you want to have one be more dominant, but you could choose and you could nudge reality into those sort of categories. Well, then if we're talking about values, we're also talking about shapes, right? Like value masses. Mm -hmm. So you said three values. Is there a certain number of shapes that you encourage your students to try to keep it under? Interesting. I never thought about it in number of shapes, but obviously the less is better. Um, You don't want to break up your shapes too much. That indicates more detail and more detail doesn't necessarily mean a better painting. I think the simpler and bigger you can keep things, the better, but I don't have an exact number. This is another vocab question. When an artist hears the term massing, what does that mean? Massing, you know, goes back to think about how you'd build that value study. So you're massing things together. Don't think about the thing, but think about how that thing relates to other things in the composition. I often relate it to the shadow that it creates. So the thing and the shadow that it creates, you could mass the shadow side of the thing to the shadow it creates. That's a bigger shape. That's like shadow massing. And if you could find a way for that thing, that bigger shape to connect to another shape, that's an even bigger shape. Then all of a sudden your, your painting is about connections of things that are not about individual items, but about bigger shapes. And I'm always trying to think about things that way. When I'm in front of a subject, I always call them things. I never really name them what they are because it sort of removes you from the personality of the subject. You know, look at the shadow shape or the light shape or the, the shape of the shadow that it creates. It's like shapes and values. Some of what we're talking about is simplification. Why is simplification important to painting? Why not just paint everything we see? It's there. Why not just paint it? 
I think it's a personal aesthetic. And I think about the hyper-realist painters and I, who doesn't get lost in looking at those things and saying, how the heck did they do that? I really am enamored by it. And it used to be my gold standard when I began painting. I thought that I, that's what I needed to be. But my sensibilities and aesthetic has changed. And I love more abstract things now. And not an abstract painter, but I do enjoy a good abstract painting. But an abstract painting that may have a foothold in reality, that I sort of sense what's going on, but I understand the bigger idea. So artists hear this idea of simplification. And it's in the word, like simple. It feels like it should be easy, but it's not. So why is simplification, especially if you're a beginning artist, so hard in practice? I really don't know because I think, you know, when we're children, you know, we just had a student show here of children and teen work. And I was enamored by a lot of the stuff they were doing because it was so simple. And it's like, why can't, why is it so hard for us to think that way when you're an adult? Because I think, you know, we think it's better to do all the details. And I think getting your head to think differently about what makes good art, it's not necessarily about doing all the details. It's about getting your simple idea across with the most economy of means. When I look at a good painting that really inspires me, I'm like, look how they got me to think about what, what it is that they're painting, but there's so little information, but I get it. I tell people all the time, and I try to keep this in the back of my mind, let the viewer finish the piece. They're smart. Just give them what they need to see and let them complete the story. I think that engages the viewer better. And I think it's more interesting to look at. Again, I love to look at a very highly rendered piece and really applaud the artist for their ability to do that. Maybe I just don't have the patience anymore, but they're awfully fine paintings. Don't get me wrong, but that doesn't necessarily make a good painting because you're able to technically do that. Do you think that part of learning to simplify is a confidence thing, almost more than a technical thing? Yeah, I think it might be. I think as artists, I think we need to tell people how proficient we are at our craft. And I think it might be a little, are they going to think I'm, I don't know what I'm doing if I simplify this? But be confident about it. And if you get your message across and it's simple, I mean, people will respond to that. So I, I think it is a, you know, are they going to think I'm good enough, especially when you're starting out? You know, maybe you do need to go through that arc of knowing that you could do something in a technical way. But then you could pull back and say, I'm going to just give you the simple, simple skinny on this. So I'll give you an example. When I started painting still life and, you know, I look at my older work and it's really detailed. You know, my flowers were painstakingly painted. Now when I paint flowers, I think about how to how to really just break down the essence of that flower. And I want to give it a strength rather than a delicate beauty. That's a change in my idea of what I want to portray. And I think it comes from having a little bit of more confidence gained over the years in, in what I want to say as a painter. In the beginning, it was about me showing people that I was able to do it. And then it becomes, I sort of don't care. I want to paint what I want to do because I know I could do that other stuff, but here's how I want to do it now. And like it or not, this is what I'm going to do. If your goal is a, a very simplified, abstracted approach to your subject, are there certain things that you need to get accurate? And what are those? I still think a good painting is founded in understanding of good drawing. I like a loose and free painting, but I still admire when an artist tells me that they're a draftsperson and they understand what's going on. I think that really is a good skill to have. So I think that is a really underlying thread that even as simple as it could be, I think really gives your painting a good foundation. Because you're working in an abstracted way, are there sort of 
things that you ground in reality through knowledge of drawing that holds the piece together. And what I mean by that is that if you're doing a really loose still life with a flower and a vase, do you need to get color accurate or light accurate or the silhouette accurate? What pieces do you need to have accurately pinned to reality? And what can you just let be as unaccurate, for lack of a better word, but can be really loose with? What do you need to get pinned in the real world so that you can get loose other places? I think I pretty much start with the silhouette. I look at things and I look at the bigger shapes of the things and I aim for painting the silhouette. That's easier for me to see proportional relationships better when I see sort of the mass of something next to the other thing. That in conjunction with then a a drawing aspect laid over it. So I'll I'll start with massing and silhouettes, check proportions, and then then I'll start putting an architecture of maybe a linear drawing sort of around that to some degree. And then my process for becoming looser is to sort of, let's call it going backwards and going forwards. Then once I get things sort of blocked in, if you will, in some sort of reality grounding with either drawing or proportional relationships, then I'll intentionally sort of mess it up. I'll use some tools, scrapers, palette knives, and I'll sort of mess it up with the knowledge that I know I could get it back if I need to. And I only want to get parts of it back. And it's those parts that show people, hopefully, that I know what I'm doing, you know, as far as maybe some drawing aspects or proportional relationships, but other areas are just sort of like totally abstracted. And it's a balance of those two. You have to know when when it's pleasing to you and when to stop doing it, but it's sort of always a give and take. I'll build, I'll destroy, I'll build, I'll destroy. And then somewhere along the way, the painting becomes at a place where I think it's interesting. I stop. So then do you draw a drawing onto your canvas when you're first starting? Again, it depends on the complexity of the subject matter. So if I'm doing like an architectural scene, I will start out with some sort of geometric placement of things. But if I'm doing a floral still life, for instance, or something or a landscape that doesn't have architecture in it, there is always some sort of calligraphy with my brush in the beginning to get a gesture. But it could be just a very fluid mark or I see a cloud pattern. I'll just make a notation. Look at that cloud pattern. I'll just get my hand in the motion of just thinking about it and getting it out of my brain through my hand. And they're never painstakingly, you know, drawn out. They're just might be more intentional lines and some more gestural lines, depending on the subject, really. But there are always some sort of notations on where things are. And it could just be five, 10 seconds, or it could be five minutes thinking that. And again, it depends on what it is that I'm working on. And those gestural marks or more intentional drawing marks are really just a way to just sort of get comfortable with what it is that I'm painting because they're, they're going to be gone in a matter of like the next 10 minutes after those are done, paint starts getting slapped on there and I don't see them anymore. So it's not like I'm just painting within those lines. I think that comes with, again, after having done it so many times, confidence to know that you're drawing with paint after that. And that initial reaction is just to get you sort of in the mood and understand where things might be placed But after that, it's a very fluid process. Then you start using the paint to make the drawing, make the drawing come to life. You just have to get over that fear of losing your, don't ever think that the drawing needs to be maintained from the beginning. It's a start and it's a place for you to think about placement of things, but then the paint takes over and then you, then you go back and reintroduce some of the drawing aspect if you want to. 
So it's you have to learn how to, the paint works in tandem with your drawing. Like you said, it's a back and forth process. It's not linear. Like once you're done drawing, like you shall never do drawing marks again. Absolutely not. I love in the middle of a painting, I'll like, you know, I, I need some linear marks in here and I'll just pick up a little bit of paint on the tip of my brush and I'll very just lightly hug a contour of something just to put a color on it. Or when a form turns, there might be like a, a hint of a bright color and you just sort of draw that on. And that's drawing for me. That's more of a linear in a very calligraphy sort of way, but it's still more of a line aspect. So yeah, in the middle of a painting, I'll start doing that. So if someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? Is this person someone who's already painted or thinking about painting? Already sort of painting. And they want to get better. Mm-hmm. Instruction is definitely a part of it, but it's not the only thing. I think a lot of people think that if I just keep taking workshops, I'm going to get better and they do nothing in between. The most critical thing you need to do is to get your studio space figured out as small as it may be. You need to have that dedicated space for it to work and you need to do the work. You need to set time. We talked about at the top of the hour, how I allocated my time when I was a full-time finance person. Your free time, you need to make time for art and you need to go in there. It's like your other job and you need to do it. You need to get the work done. You need to get those paintings done. That's how you're going to get better. And then you need to touch base with either your artist group, take your workshops, always look to other artists. Keep I can also keep files on artists that, that I like. You know, look to those people to look how they work. And you may not study with them, but you could look at their work and see how they create paintings. And on the internet too, it's like there's a bunch of free stuff that you have access to. And with Zoom now, you could you have access to classes that are really great instructors all over the country, the world, actually. You can learn more about Bernard Delario, including his workshops at his website, bjdelario.com and on Instagram. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Bernard. Oh, it was really my pleasure, Kelly. I really enjoyed talking with you. So that's the end of the main feature. But guess what? There's more great conversation with Bernard Delario. To hear the extended episode right now, where you'll discover how Delario creates those beautiful edges and specific examples of exercises he does in his studio, head to patreon.com slash learn to paint podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Fans of the show love it and you will too. Check it out at patreon.com slash learn to paint podcast. Speaking of fans, thank you to everyone in the podcast art club on Patreon. Extra shiny thank yous to High Gloss supporters, Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Catherine Ordway, Pam Lyle, and Victoria Young. See you over on Patreon for the extended episode. Happy painting.